Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 25 of the Sachin and Adam podcast. Uh, today, we have someone really special on that we've actually been trying to get on the podcast for a while. And I think that's one of the positive things of COVID. We've been able to reach out and make time with people that we probably wouldn't have been able to reach out to before, which is awesome. Um, I think a few of you have probably seen the introduction video we posted up for our channel. Um, we hope you like it and get ready for some, get ready for an in interesting chat today. Yeah. So today we've got a really high profile guest in, um, Elizabeth Broderick. Um, Liz has worked at Ashurst as a partner there for many years. Um, and since then she's done a lot of really, um, great work with, with gender discrimination and, and on gender equality, um, such as working, um, at the UN, um, as a sort of independent special expert there. She was a sex discrimination um, commissioner in Australia for a number of years. And now she works at a really, really great organization called Male Champions of Change, which is fighting for greater gender equality in Australia. So welcome on today, Liz. You are now listening to the Sachin and Adam show. Liz? Thanks very much. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what Male Champions of Change actually means and how you got there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so as you said in your introduction, Adam, I'm, you know, focused on gender equality. So when we talk about gender equality, we often think, oh, well, that's either women's business or it's women against men. And in fact, it's neither of those things. When mm -hmm. I, I talk about gender equality, I'm talking really about a key social and economic issue, which affects every one of us. And it goes to the heart of who we are and how we live, whether you're a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, or indeed across the spectrum of genders as well. So um, the Male Champions of Change was really a strategy which recognises that in the past, um, women and girls, most of the rights that they have in the world today have been delivered because probably women that none of us know, but women generations back actually had the courage to step up and demand change for women and girls across the world. Um, and, you know, I'm forever eternally grateful for that. But where we've got to now is whilst the collective action of women's really important, it needs to be supplemented by the collective action of men. Because the fact is in every one of our nations, it's men who hold the levers of power. And if we want to work to create more gender equal world, we need those men who hold power. And in fact, men across all echelons of society um, to actually step up with women and to create change together. So gender equality is not a zero sum game where women win and men lose. It's absolutely about creating better families, better organizations, better communities and better nations and indeed economies for everyone. Because when women lifts, a lift the world lifts and I think that's a really important point to know. Mm, awesome that's a very pragmatic approach to sort of getting better gender equality. So what are the actual actions that male champions of change are taking to fight gender yeah. equality? So at the male champions change started really small about eight years ago and it started when I was the sex discrimination commissioner I started to realize that um, you know that we need men as allies um, and I went out and I ran some of the most powerful men in the nation. I rang the head of Qantas, Alan Joyce. I rang the head of the banks. I rang the head of Woolworths and others. And I said, will you use your um, collective voice, your wisdom, your power to step up beside women and create change? So that was eight, eight or nine years ago now. Where we are now is we've got 
17 male champions of change groups. We've got over 250 male champions of change, not just based here in Australia, but globally. We've got the global tech group. We've got a group in Pakistan, a group in the Philippines. Uh, we're studying a group in India. So collectively, these men come together recognizing that no one of us will ever be as good as all of us shifting global systems to ensure greater levels of gender equality. So what type of things do they do? Um, just to give you one example, and this is an example which costs nothing, and actually I'd encourage it to all your um, listeners on the podcast, is when they get asked to speak at global events or even just events down here in Australia, um, they always ask, look, how many women will be speak speaking at the event? Um, will it be a gender equal audience? Because I'm a male champion of change and I don't speak at events where women's voices are not heard too. And just that shift has really made a difference because those men speak probably at about a thousand, they deliver around a thousand keynote um, addresses every year. If every one of them demands that there's both men and women as presenters, it opens up space for women to start to get extra visibility and gain their career. So that, that was one thing. I just want to give you one other example. Um, the Male Champions Change has been very focused on flexible work for the last couple of years. And every one of them has gone to what we call all roles flex. That is, you don't have to ask for flexibility. Flexibility is a given, whether you're a woman or a man. Um, but what you have to do as an, an employee of an organization is to work with your supervisor to find out what type of flexibility can work best in this particular role. Um, and so what we've seen, the Male Champions Change really embrace flexi flexible work as a contemporary form of work. And just in the last few months, we've seen the acceleration of that. Indeed, Andy Penn, the head of Telstra, um, was saying that he was able to move 25,000 employees from an office building to work from their homes across a weekend. So they're working in the office on Friday and 25,000 were working from home on Monday. So flexibility works for both men and women. Because one of the things we know is that men, um, because of a whole lot of stereotypes that exist, have less opportunity to spend with um, their families, with children, to be involved in caring. And flexible work really um, allows that to happen in a much more human way. That's awesome. What a, what a way to get started. Um, I'm keen to dive into a bit of it, more of this stuff in a second, but I think it'll be cool to understand your story of how you got to this um, space and what kind of instilled this passion of gender equality. Yeah, well, I, I don't know whether there's one single event. When I think back on it, really, I was born an identical twin. And when you're born an identical twin, you know absolutely from the minute you put your foot on the ground what fairness is all about. <laughs> because if your twin gets something and you don't get exactly or something of equal value, doesn't have to be the same, but of equal value, then you know in just intuitively that that's not fair. So I think at the heart of you know just everything um, about how I've lived my life and whatever is an innate sense of fairness. Mm. And in to just, if you take that even um, extrapolate it more, as I grew up, I also lived in a household where there were more um, girls and women than men. Um, so I've got two sisters, um, mum, even the dog was female. So a quite a highly feminized household. And then it wasn't really until I got probably to university that I first started to see 
um, you know, that that was not necessarily the way the world operated. And I did computer science with my law degree. So I spent a lot of time in the School of en Electrical me. Engineering. <laughs> what even when I started, so I would have been graduating in at uni in the early 80s. I think I was one of three girls in a graduating class of about 200 in computer science. I mean, law had more. Law had been up near 50% women in the law school. But it just showed me um, that actually gender equality wasn't necessarily a given. And that was particularly the case um, when I came into the workplace. And, you know, my first jobs after retail and hospital and those types of jobs was actually um, working in a law firm uh, where, they, you know, even though it was a very, uh, it was an excellent law firm, the fact is the number of female partners was very, very low. So I, you know, worked there. I worked in technology and law. I loved every minute of it, but I came to a, a place where I, I really wanted to do more. I wanted to step up and develop my voice, a distinctive voice campaigning for gender equality, not just in my law firm, um, but across Australia. And indeed, I'm so fortunate now to have the role as the lead chair rapporteur for the United Nations on women and girls across the world. So that's really a bit of a journey. I still remember I, um, when I decided that, you know, I started going out and looking for particular roles. And it was at that time that the government was looking for a sex discrimination commissioner. Um, and they also reached out to me and I have to say it's the one job that I'd always coveted if I thought if I had my life and my ideal job it would have been that role and I have to say it never disappointed mm -hmm. because that's a role where one day you can be um, with the military in say I used to, it was in Oresgon province in Afghanistan out beyond the wire with all our troops uh, that's one minute in the other you can next minute you can be in a community organization or indeed the Pentagon or the Parliament of Australia or the boardroom so just the variety of it was incredible oh, and every day I got to work with people who cared about equality just like yeah. me so that was beautiful so just before we dive into some of your other experiences what would you say in your own words gender equality actually means uh, gender equality is about um, the I was going to say the equality of men and women, but for me, um, when I talk about gender equality, I'm talking about a world where men and women are paid equally for work of equal value, where there is no violence against women, um, where men can choose to step outside the gender stereotype and can choose to care equally with women for children and family, where women can be equally engaged in paid work as men where gender stereotypes don't limit either men or women because they imprison men, I believe, equally with women. And where we can live, um, you know, live intertwined lives uh, which are based on dignity and respect. Mm -hmm. That's at the heart of creating a gender equal uh, world, a genderly equal nation. Yeah, well, I don't think anyone can disagree with that. Yeah. So, so with that, like it seems like a bit of a mix between equality of opportunity and equality of outcome, which is something on this podcast we like to discuss. Um, and with, with that, because I think this is a good way to open up this discussion, but amongst males, when I've had conversations about gender equality, there's a few things that always come up. It seems that um, 
some males always kind of divert straight to the gender pay gap. It's like the status quo. Oh, let's, let's argue about this and make it seem like gender equality isn't really like an issue, which is terrible. Right. Um, with, with this work with males, chambers of change, I just want to get your um, advice on what constructive conversations can males have about their role in creating gender equality? Yeah, it's such a great question because men are half of the solution. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, men are seen as the enemy rather as co-creator of a gender equal future that we want. So I think it starts for men, it just starts with um, a human conversation with other men or of course with women. But just, I think you can't um, uh, kind of understand the world we're trying to create unless you understand the world that we're currently living in from a gender equality perspective. So it's out talking to women initially, listening to their stories, their stories of not being able to achieve the aspirations they had for their lives. The, some of the women I talk to um, who are living in situation characterized by violence, but because they have no income, um, they're unable to leave those situations. Um, you know, talking to your mothers, your sisters, your daughters, whoever it is, and then having that conversation with men. So, you know, men just talking about um, also their desires and what they want for their life. Because often men are put into a stream of, you have to be the breadwinner, you have to be strong and non-emotive, all those things, which are, once again, it's a stereotype which imprisons men. So helping men's and in fact, everyone see that just being who you are in the world is what's um, important. But I don't think you can get to that place without listening to the stories that um, will reveal the barriers that we need to shift today if we are to create a more gender equal world. And it's not about, um, you know, ripping power off men. It's about a more equal redistribution of power wherever that sits in in you know, communities, in parliament or whatever, so that everyone benefits. Because I think there's a great fear, and a lot of men that I meet with, they're fearful um, about, you know, what they might have to give up or lose. But even if you bring it back to the family, and, you know, I think human rights starts at home. It absolutely starts in the family. If you live in a family where both, um, you know, where both um, adults are employed then if he and i'm talking about opposite sex families here in but recognizing that families come in all shapes and sizes but if the if the husband loses his job and the woman's employed then that builds economic resilience into the family that's why gender equality that's one of the reasons gender equality is so very important uh, it it prevents a family from falling into poverty in a time like covid19 uh, that's just one example, but I can give you a million other examples. Hmm. So what would you say are some of the most pertinent issues at the moment to do with gender equality, not just in Australia, but around the world? Yeah, so what, what I'm seeing in my global work um, is a number of things. And if I can just um, talk about coming into the pandemic. So prior to the pandemic, what I was seeing was a backlash on human rights generally but particularly women and LGBTIQ rights, because they're often seen as progressive Western values 
and there's a real push uh, pushback against those values. And I mean, we don't have to go to developing nations. We can see that clearly in developed nations like the US and elsewhere. Um, so, and, and there's a particular pushback on women's reproductive rights. Um, what I'm seeing coming into the pandemic now is that COVID does have a very gendered impact. Um, sadly, the majority of people who are dying from COVID are men. Um, I think people don't understand, and I don't even know that medical science understands why that is, but that, that's what the data is telling us. But if I look at the gendered impact for women, what am I seeing? Well, I'm seeing a big um, increase in the number of women living with domestic and family violence. Even if you go back to Hubei province, back to Wuhan, the police reported a 300% uplift wow. in the women um, living with domestic and family violence. And let's not forget that coming into this pandemic, there were already 980 million women. That's nearly a billion women who were either at that time living in an intimate relationship characterized by physical violence, and we know domestic violence much wider than that, um, at that point, um, or had recently done so. So, you know, those figures are huge. And if you see a 300% uplift there, we're talking a really significant problem. And it's exacerbated because of the um, quarantine and lockdown provisions. I mean, for those 980 million women, home is the least safe place on the planet. Mm. So that's one implication. The other is very much around you know, sharing care, because pretty much in every nation of the world, unpaid work is largely the domain of women. And that's, it's hugely complex as to why that's the case. It's often about social norms and other things. But um, if you've got um, the kids out of childcare, you've got your school-aged children out of school, you've got elderly parents who need more care, and you've got an increase of people living in the house, that unpaid work and that care work disproportionately is falling on women. And that's what we're seeing at the minute. And not only that, we're seeing more women lose their jobs than men. The reason for that is women are to a much greater extent in precarious employment or in casual work. And women of colour, Indigenous women and women who are more marginalised have even greater rates of um, you know, losing their jobs. So those things, plus, as I said before, the fact that um, women's reproductive rights is the battleground at the minute. If I, last week, I, I put out a press release in my role as a UN's um, lead rapporteur, and I named the 11 states in the US that currently, as of today, have declared that abortion is a non-essential procedure. So it's an elective procedure, therefore it's no longer available for women. And that really disadvantages poor women because wealthy women can get on a plane and go to a state where you know, reproductive rights are still respected, abortion still available. But if you're a poor woman, you cannot. And some of the stories I'm hearing out of the US on that are really deeply depressing. So that's really just the gendered, some of the gendered dimensions. Um, of course, there's a whole lot of um, thought that we need to put into this recovery phase as well, because most of the new projects and the new jobs will come from what they call shovel-ready um, projects, like big infrastructure projects. And we know that that will, dis that will um, disproportionately disadvantage women because there are not many women in construction and infrastructure. So we need jobs back in caring, 
professions in nursing and public health and those professions as well. Wow, 980 million. I'm still yeah. crazy yeah. thinking about that number. That's crazy. Um, I think that from, from my own experience, I think when we're talking about gender equality, feminism, living in Australia, we often talk, think about the issue from a very Western lens. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's important to consider the issue from a global lens because gender equality isn't just a Western issue. Um, I, I would love to hear about some of your work with the UN in um, kind of non-Western nations and how the mm. problems differ in those kind of countries. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, we often put a Western lens on it. And just to, to give you um, a couple of examples, because in my role at the minute, I'm writing to the heads of different nation states, drawing to their attention human rights violations against women and girls in their country. And particularly at the minute during COVID, we've seen a huge increase. So for example, one of the countries that I wrote to last week, um, they have um, most of the women in that country are employed in the informal economy. So they might be street vendors selling their clothes in a public space. When the lockdown happens, they're no longer able to earn any income because of that. So these one group of women who were so entrepreneurial, they decided they would become digital entrepreneurs and they will sell their clothes through their Facebook pages. I'm good on them for that. I love that. But when they started modeling their clothes and started putting it up on their Facebook page, it came to the attention of the government of that nation. And the prime minister sent round the police to actually drag those women out of their house for damaging the morality of the nation. Wow. Those women were forced to read out confessions on their Facebook page and are now currently incarcerated. So that's the type of thing because, and it comes back to the stereotypes. I think stereotyping um, is really one of the main things that needs to shift because in many countries of the world, women are seen to be, they need protection. I mean, today I've been looking at the male guardianship um, arrangements, which are, you see across the Middle East so that I can't leave my house without the permission of a male guardian. Mm. Indeed, even in, a certain er in certain countries, my evidence, if I give it as a woman, is worth less than any evidence given by a man. So these are things that are built into the laws. Um, they're built into the structures and the way the whole society operates. in the social norms around or in Australia believe that good mothers are always with their children now you can be um, you know smoking drinking abusing if you're always with your children you're a good mother so social norms exist in every nation uh, but I think you know they can be particularly problematic in some nations yeah wow I, I'd imagine that like it must be so hard in your role to kind of navigate these systematic differences, these religious differences sometimes, whilst also trying to push progress forward. Yeah. You're, you're right, because the, it's the rise of fundamentalist religions and extremism mm. that is probably the leading cause of backlash on women, yeah. um, on women's rights across the world. Also, it'd be the same with LGBTIQ rights, but what we're seeing is the rise of more fundamentalist religions. And I'm talking about extreme forms of Islam, extreme forms of Catholicism, extreme forms of Pentecostal, 
all those for, um, kind of influences which really want to put men and women back in traditional roles. Yeah. And that's a really retrogressive situation. Mm. I was wondering what your perspective is on um, when you sort of view Australia in the perspective of the rest of the countries around the world. How do you think Australia fares relatively in terms of gender equality? Yeah, in terms of gender equality, if I look at, and it would be probably right to compare us with other OECD countries, mm, yeah. we're probably about smack in the middle of those countries. I mean, there's areas where we're quite advanced, particularly around recognising domestic violence as a workplace issue, having a paid parental leave scheme, you know, having um, higher levels of equality in workplaces, having strong sexual harassment laws, all those types of things. But Let's not forget that even today, if you look at the top 200 companies, I think there's more, and I'm not exactly sure what the name is today, but there's more CEOs named either Andrew, Peter or David than there are female CEOs at all. And similarly with board directors as well. So we've still got such a long way to go. We've only ever had one female prime minister. the number of women in the parliament is less than 30 percent so these given that women make up the majority of the australian population 50.8 percent um we still uh we still have a lot of lot of work to do mm, yeah that, that's very interesting and i think that I kind of saw this on a personal note earlier this year. I work for a company where we teach social enterprise and design thinking. And I went to down to a school in Melbourne, um, an all female school. And the experience I had there for three days was absolutely incredible. These young women were like, I guarantee you they'll be future leaders. But then when we're talking about what entrepreneurs they had to look up to, most of the entrepreneurs that we listed were male, apart from like, um, Melanie Perkins, the founder of Canva, or yeah. someone like Michelle Obama. I, 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 this is the first time in my life I realized that a lot of the people that these girls look up to are males. And yeah. we like, yeah. And, and I just. It's such a great point because you can't be what you can't see. And if yeah. I can't see any female entrepreneurs or women in aviation or women in the military or women in science, um, I'm going to think that there is no place for me in those sectors and industries. And the reality is that they are the sectors that are shaping our future. Mm. I mean, you take technology and particularly AI coders, I think less than 5% of AI coders are women mm. or, you know, people in machine learning, big data. They're very, very few women in that area. So, you know, it's just, we can't have a world where women haven't had the ability to shape this world equally with men. Yeah. yeah. What do you say, Liz, to just sort of speaking as a devil's advocate here, a lot of people might say that men and women are accustomed to certain things or they're drawn to certain types of work. And they sometimes use that as a justification for why things as they are and why they should stay as they are. What's your response to that? You're right that that's often the case. And if you look at, I think it's the Harvard, um, it's a affinity survey. They say men are more, um, you know, have a greater affinity to mathematics and this and that, whereas women to humanities. But I think that it's, that's all about the conditioning. Boys and girls are conditioned quite differently. Um, and interestingly, in many countries that are not very good on gender equality, they have many more women going into engineering and STEM 
it's a bit of a paradox, really. Um, so if you looked at, I think it's um, Saudi Arabia and a number of nations there, they have high numbers of women in engineering and STEM, whereas they're much less gender equal um, than, than Australia is. But here in Australia, we tell girls particularly, look, you can do anything. Um, whereas in Saudi or, or across the Middle East, you're more likely to say, okay, well, um, you want more technical pursuits. But I think here we say, well, girls can do anything. And in fact, you know, I love that. I love that we live in that world. But when I look at why women go into STEM and stay in STEM, they're not going in for higher salaries, which is often the reason men are going in. They're going in because of purpose. They want to be part of shaping a better world. Mm. Um, and I think the, the reasons are quite different. Therefore, if I enter an organisation where that's not their purpose, where their purpose is something totally different, I'm much less likely to stay. So I think, you know, we even if we were graduating, say, 50% scientists or engineers, female engineers, unless we change the culture of organisations, we wouldn't keep women in those organisations or disciplines. So we've got to work on a whole lot of different fronts. Yeah, interesting. And I think, so... As a bit of context, when I first heard about quotas, I was originally against them because I was thinking that there's no other way that we should force a quality of outcome. We should more focus on of, of a quality of opportunity. But since then, I've kind of changed my perspective. After having that experience in Melbourne, I realized that to get, to get women in areas like finance, in areas that are typically very male dominated, they need to have leaders to work towards. They need to feel support in those communities. And that's why I think that quotas may be a good thing. I was wondering what your view on quotas is. It's a very debated topic, especially at the moment. It is a very debated topic, but it's such a great idea because, look, I think we're trying to work on many fronts, you know, cultural change, changing the social norms, getting more women to want to move into science and technology and whatever. But at the end of the day, if those strategies are not working, and we believe fundamentally that men and women have equal aptitude and merit, then I think a quota, or what they call in the global, in the global setting, we call a quota what we call a temporary special measure. It only needs to be put in place um, for the achievement of what a legitimate outcome, which would be gender equality. So it would only be temporary. So say you were going to do it around the number of women in the engineering faculty, you'd say, okay, we will introduce a 30%, a 40% quota, whatever it is. And then by the time we get to the 50%, we don't need to have that quota in anymore because we've reimagined what normal looks like. So the quota allows you to reimagine what a normal, what, what normal looks like and what a gender equal world would look like. So, you know, where we've been trying for a long time and we're not seeing progress, I'm absolutely in favor of quotas at that point. What if we find out that there is, there isn't this sense of normality when we have a 50-50 split. What if even when there is some time in the future, there's this complete equality of opportunity and you still find this sort of disparity in maybe yeah. just anything like engineering, computer science, nursing, what then would you still be yeah. looking for that sort of 50-50 split? Well, I think, see, part of the problem there, Adam, is that pretty much every institution in Australia, and I'd suggest in most regions of the world, has been invented by men, for men and is largely run by men. And indeed, that's what's made the organisation really strong in the past. But the whole talent pool has changed now. Women are educated and employed and whatever. So to 
um, persist with that kind of model when the talent is different, the talent, and let's um, face it, if we looked at all the different universities across the world, by far the majority of graduates are female. So they're about 60% out of tertiary uh, institutions here in Australia. So in fact, the organizations we're trying to pour women into have been designed by men for men and largely run by men. And we're wondering why women are being spat out of these organizations. I mean, the fact is that if we don't intentionally and actively include women, the system will unintentionally exclude them. And that's, Sashin, back to your point about the quota. What the quota allows us to do is actively and intentionally include women. And we need to, as well as the quota, we need to start changing the structures, the systems, the beliefs, um, you know, of organisations so that both men and women can thrive equally. Because unless we have that equality of opportunity by itself will never be enough. Mm. It just won't be enough because the opportunity that's presented is one that's very much based on a male life trajectory. Yeah, mm. yeah, I, I think that's an important point because we can get really caught up in the details of our males and females biologically inclined towards certain things. And of course, we can actually never test that because we can never have um, a test example, so to speak, that isn't socialized, that hasn't experienced kind of the way that someone is socialized to be a male or female. And although we can never confirm or disconfirm whether males and females have different kind of inclinations or different industries and stuff like that. I think that's a good point that instead of focusing on that, we should be focusing on, first of all, getting a quality of opportunity in those fields and then kind of seeing what happens. But yeah, I, no, exactly. But yeah, I think what Adam was asking, if we have this perfect equality of opportunity hypothetically, and there's still a difference, would you still be fighting yeah. for that 50-50 or would you say that that's a, like, that's kind of... No, because it's, it, we want to respect personal choice, whether you're yeah, male or okay. female. So no, that's at the heart of it. Because when you look at human rights, what is it that you're trying to do? You're trying to ensure that all of us who have universal human rights, and it's so interesting to see at the minute because different countries are trying to reinterpret what human rights are. I mean, you know, they're moving to a much more isolationist position. Whereas we understand human rights to be universal and indivisible. They come from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. You don't have to do anything to get them. You have them because you're human. Yeah. Um, and at the heart of human rights is dignity and respect. And it's also about your choice. So how you, where you choose to live, how you, where you choose to work or whatever. Um, you know, that, that really is at the heart of human rights. Yeah, and, and I'm sorry that we didn't mention this before, but I just saw that um, you were the winner of the New South Wales Australian of the Year. That's, That's right. Yeah, a couple we'll, of years we'll, ago. Yeah, we'll, we'll run that in the <laughs> intro. Um, Liz, a quick question. Over your long and expansive career thus far, what, what has been the most pivotal moment, do you think? Or most memorable mm -hmm. moment? Um. Oh, one moment. It's really hard to pick one moment because there's been so many amazing moments. I mean, one moment that stays with me, I've been asked because of all my work with the military and I do quite a lot of work with the police and command and control environments, I was asked to go to um, um, uh, across to Belgium to... Uh, <laughs> Um, to really look at giving advice to military leaders across the world um, about 
you know, some of the things that they should be doing. And I remember sitting there um, thinking, my gosh, if I'm giving advice to military leaders, this planet is in deeply, deeply troubled times. I'm sure they can get someone better than me. And um, then I got a text from one of the kids. I still, I had my mobile phone there and I got a text from one of the kids as I was helping, you know, prepare these resolutions and whatever. And it was, you know, I was in Brussels and they were back home in Sydney and the text said, mum, what's for dinner? And I just thought, oh, what an abject failure am I? They still think it's only their mother can, you know, <laughs> here I am trying to be really big and, and impressive. So yeah, there's been a million moments like that, but you know, it's been a privilege to do all the different work that I've done. I loved working my time with the military because we were able to lead a lot of strong cultural change. Um, I loved the um, work that I did with community organisations into the parliament, yeah, all across the world. And now, so just next week, I'll be presenting into the Human Rights Council in Geneva, um, delivering my reports in relation to particular countries. So one will be Greece. I was in the refugee camps on the Greek islands. The last time I was there was when I was drinking, you know, ouzo or whatever, when I was at uni hanging on the Greek islands. This time I was in um, interviewing people. It were deeply sad stories in the refugee camps on Lesbos and elsewhere. So I'll be presenting all my work into the different nations of the world who make up the Human Rights Council in Geneva. Wow, wow. That's, that's incredible. Well, what's, what's the experience been like in the UN? Like if you can talk us through like, what, what are the well, different leaders like and stuff like that? <laughs> it is pretty amazing. That was a moment when I remember the first time I had to um, present in the UN in New York in the big General Assembly room. And I remember, you know, they asked for Australia. And then I'm looking around and my little microphone on the front had lit up, you know, Australia. I'm looking around going, oh, my God, where are they? And then I thought, oh, my God, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> Started presenting at that point. But, yeah, no, I regularly um, speak in, in the UN. And, look, it's a different environment. And sometimes it's you feel... Um, I feel quite helpless to create global change. It's just so complex. Mm, yeah. So you might expect people to respect human rights, to respect gender equality. In many nations of the world, um, there is not that respect. So it's how do you meet people in some kind of common ground to actually uh, you know, be able to influence them to vote for your resolutions or to agree with you know, your propositions that you're putting. And I think the most important thing is to be standing in their shoes, see the world as uh, from the direction that they're seeing it, and then be able to open up some common ground between us. So whenever I go in there, it doesn't matter who I speak to. If I'm speaking to a representative of a nation, you know, that I know in the back of my mind does not respect gender equality or women's rights, I still assume good intent. Because if I don't always assume good intent, um, the conversation has nowhere to go. And not only that, I'm diminishing everything about the experiences and the influences that have shaped that nation or those people to hold that particular view. So it is amazing. It's When you walk in, there are people from every part of the world in every kind of dress you can imagine. It is just phenomenal to be in that environment. That's super exciting. Can't imagine what that would be like. Yeah. Um, so you have to get across at some stage, you have to get across to the Commission on the Status of Women. That's about 10,000 from every corner of the world converge on New York. And it's the most amazing meeting. 
Well, um, yeah, so Liz, you've had this amazing, amazing career and you've obviously had a lot of impact in the work you do. So me and Adam are both people that we, we want to have a big impact on the world and we don't exactly know how yet. We have a few ideas here and there. <laughs> we pretend like we know what we're talking about. But, but from your perspective to other university students who want to achieve change in the world, um, want, to, want to leave their mark on the world, what advice do you have um, based on your experience? Well, can I say firstly, I think you will achieve change in the world just through having your podcast and and listening to um, people who are doing different things in the world. I actually that would be my first piece of advice is that, um, you know, there's so much to learn and to be curious about what's happening in, to, in the world and to get out and learn about it. I think, you know, you've got to learn firstly, um, you know, just just to understand, but also to find out what is your work to do in the world. So, you know, for many of us, we go, we do a degree and then we come out, you know, with a particular vocation. Are you a lawyer? Are you an academic? Are you an engineer? Are you a nurse or whatever? Um, and that's great. You can find purpose in any role, I believe. But I think you need to think bigger than that. You need to really ask yourself, um, is the work that I can do here Firstly, do I believe in it? Um, does it give me purpose? Um, and is it part of creating a better world? And if not, what are some things that I could do on the side that I'm really interested in that would take me in that direction? So, you know, you two guys are really interested in um, learning from others and taking that wisdom out to, you know, a much broader community. That's really helping people. And I think in that first stage, of um, just understanding what's happening in the world and also what part I can play. And then I think once you've understood where you want to play, I mean, I know even before I was Sex Discrimination Commissioner, I might have been a junior lawyer at that part time. I was in a big law firm. I mean, people can say, oh, big law firms, you know, just, all they care about money is money. I, I dispute that. I think law firms are collections of people who care about humanity and profitability. I have no doubt about that, but you can always find a place. And for me, I used to reach out in that firm to people who cared about humanity as well. And not only that, if I saw some, I used to read the papers, the newspapers ferociously. If I saw someone that I thought had done something positive in the world, I'd actually reach out to them. And I'd just write to them. I didn't know. I'd say, look, hi, you don't know me. I'm a junior lawyer or I'm a, law student or you know I'm this or that but I just wanted to say thank you so much for what you're doing in the world because it makes a difference for every one of us and I think you know just that initial um, reaching out can be really helpful particularly if you're reaching out in your area where you want to start to develop some kind of you know, um, not additional work stream but it's it's more a vocation it's what you want to do with your life it's going to feed your soul I think that's very, very important. And it just becomes more and more important the older you get. Mm. Wow. So my, my, my one piece of advice, if I could sum it up in a few words, would be less intellect and more humanity. Just all you have to do is reach out in a human way. You don't have to know anything about what they're doing or you know, that science or that discipline. You're just reaching out as two human beings who share the planet, who sleep under the same stars, and you're thanking them for what they're doing yeah that's awesome that's awesome i think in that spirit we'd like to thank you for what you've done yeah thank you <laughs> thank you
Yeah. yeah. No, that's great. I've really enjoyed being part of it. And thanks back to you because I think it's um, fantastic, all the people. The fact that you're on your 25th, that means you've got a sustainable um, venture there as well, and that's fantastic. So a million congratulations to both of you. Thank you so much for coming on, Liz. That was so informative, so informative. All right, that was episode 25 with Elizabeth Brodrich. Thank you very much. Thank you.